I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Family Saga, featuring Jennifer Clement, Min Jin Lee and Marcus Zusak in conversation with Benjamin Law, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. G'day everyone, my name is Benjamin Law. Welcome to the Byron Bay Writers Festival. Uh, it's a huge honour to be here with you all on Bundjalung land. Um, First Nations Australians, like the Arakwal people of Bundjalung Nation, um, have been telling stories here for over 65,000 years, the longest continuing, surviving, thriving civilization on this planet uh, has ever seen. Um, we... We are very grateful to elders past and present that we can continue telling stories here on what is and what will always be Aboriginal land. And in this, the year, the international year of Indigenous languages, I think it's especially important for all of us on country not to just acknowledge which country we're on, but to also know some language. And in Bunjalung, g'day is Jingiwala. So Jingiwala, everyone. Jingiwala. Fantastic. And with that in mind, it makes me think that we are um, especially lucky uh, to have three of the world's most dynamic and critically acclaimed living authors on stage with us right now. And today they're talk going to talk about, they can take it, no need to be modest here. <laughs> and today um, they're going to be talking about that constant source of so many of our stories and maybe even anxieties. The human family. It's a very complex organism. And for anyone who has dug into their own family history, you'll discover what I guess Icelandic people have known for a long time, that every family is a saga. And we're going to dive into three of those sagas with these authors here today. So let's start off here. Our first guest is a Korean-American author whose debut novel was the critically acclaimed Free Food for Millionaires. Her 2017 novel, uh, Pachinko, was a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction, named one of New York Times' 10 best books of that year, as well as over 75 other best books of the year's list. Uh, eventually, Pachinko will be translated into 29 languages. President Obama is a huge fan of the book, and Apple has ordered its TV adaptation. She also serves as a trustee of PEN America and a director of the Authors Guild. Please welcome Min Jin Lee. Our next guest is the American-Mexican author of four novels, including Prayers for the Stolen, a true story based on lies and the poison that fascinates. Her novels have been translated into 30 languages, and she's also published four books of poetry and wrote the acclaimed memoir, Widow Basquiat. Her latest novel, Gun Love, was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Award for Fiction, one of Time Magazine's 10 Best Fiction Books of 2018, and she is also president of Penn International, and the first woman to be elected since the organisation was founded in 1921. Please welcome Jennifer Clement. And our final guest is the youngest of four children of immigrant German and Austrian parents, neither of whom could read or write in English when they first arrived in Australia. 
And now, of course, he is an internationally best-selling author whose works have been translated into more than 40 languages and has spent more than a decade on the New York Times bestseller list. His titles include The Messenger and, of course, The Book Thief, which won myriad awards, was adapted into a major feature film and sold more than 15 million copies. And his latest novel is Bridge of Clay. Please welcome Marcus Duzak. Okay, let's di di dive deep into families now. Um, we're dealing with three very different families in the books that we're going to be talking about. And Jennifer, I might start with you. Um, the, the novel that you've written, Gun Love, begins with a pretty memorable line. Uh, it starts with, my mother was a cup of sugar. You could borrow her any time. And the narrator telling us this is Pearl, who's 14 years old. Tell us about Pearl, her mother Margot, and where they found themselves. Well, Pearl and Margot live in a car in Florida, uh, not even in a trailer park. They live outside a, a trailer park where they, can, where they can park. They're both quite small, so they fit in the car. And uh, so the mother's bedroom is the back seat and the daughter's bedroom is the front seat. Mm. And we're somewhere in Florida? Yeah, in the north of Florida. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it strikes me that Florida is a purposeful choice for where this novel is set. And it has something related to the title as well, Gun Love. These two women will find themselves in a world of... I guess firearms, uh, how, how did that come to be the seed of, of this family story you wanted to write? Well, I did want to write about guns because uh, I'm from Mexico and that's where I live. And what many people don't know is that if the guns were not coming from the United States to Mexico and Central America, 47% uh, of all US gun dealers would be out of business. So, so many of our problems have to do with U.S. guns. And so I wanted to tell that story. Uh, and, well, the, the real reason for picking uh, Florida was not for all the exotic reasons that people think of, but more because of the route that they would have to take to, to take the guns into Mexico and crossing at a certain bridge uh, in Laredo. Mm. And that story about firearms and gun violence doesn't seem to go away uh, in the continent, especially what's happened in the last 24 hours in, in Texas. We can talk more about that soon, but I'm going to hand it over to Marcus. Uh, the line that you begin with in your latest novel, Bridge of Clay, uh, is also quite memorable. In the beginning, there was one murderer, one mule, and one boy. Um, the character we're hearing from is uh, Matthew. Uh, he's kind of the, the, the responsible brother of the five brothers that we're going to be introduced to. But the main kind of driving uh, force of the narrative is Clay, one of the other brothers. So tell us a bit about Matthew, Clay, and, and who this murderer might possibly be. All right, I'm already thinking, God, that was a hard question. Uh, it's, <laughs> just, it's a pricey. Give us it, a pricey. That's, that's a, a few rungs down from what's your book about. Uh, and uh, it's, no, but it's, it's so nice to come to, to festivals like this because you actually get to revisit what it was like to be there and feel both the joy and the fear of writing the book. And I remember that first sentence, getting that right was such a, a big moment. And uh, that happened at about the eight-year mark because uh, <laughs> I tried all these other things. And, uh, and Matthew was not my first 
narrator and uh, pretty much everyone in that family had a shot at narrating this book uh, and I just, not, nothing would work and, you know, and I think you, you're always spending so much time searching, searching and you go, well, that doesn't work, well, that didn't work, well, that doesn't work either and then I finally hit on Matthew because he and Clay are the most alike. There are five brothers. I, there was one version of the book where I cut three of the brothers out. Uh, and then I realised everything was just the same colour because they were so much alike and you couldn't believe that they would own a mule uh, it, because they, those two brothers are the more serious uh, in the family. And, uh, and so The Murderer is just a nickname and it's a book full of nicknames and I think families are, are full of nicknames and I, you know, I think every culture loves nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, right back to, you know, as the thing that drew me to even just finding parts of the Iliad and the Odyssey as I was writing this book, where it's, it's never just Achilles. It's always the fast-running Achilles. So, so, Marcus, it sounds like this, this book has had several iterations and versions, but at the core of the story, is it safe to say that the consistent thing has always been a story of a family uh, and the parents, um, one has died and one's absent and then one returns? Was that clear right from the beginning? Uh, I, nothing's too, ever too clear at the beginning, and uh, I think even though I plan meticulously and then you write something, you just write one sentence that you didn't know you were going to write that day. And I think that's the best thing about being a writer yeah. is when you think, God, if I didn't write today, if I, if I was lazy, I, I wouldn't have just thought of that line. And I remember uh, writing just one sentence or two sentences about Penelope, their mother who has died. And the first one was that she was a many named woman and she had these nicknames. And then the second was that she came from a watery wilderness. And so I think you learn about your book as much after it as when you're writing it. Mm. And I've come to the conclusion now that what Bridge of Clay is actually about is the idea that we start becoming who we are so long before we're even born. Mm. And all of these, it's the stories that have travelled all that way and then you arrive and that's already a part of you. Mm. We've got three authors on the stage who um, will probably be brought up in uh, weekend quizzes for years to come. Like, which author wrote this amazing first sentence? Um, because, Min Jin Lee, uh, your, your first sentence of Pachinko is quite iconic now. History has failed us, but no matter. So in this book, Pachinko, what is the history that we're talking about? And who is the family that it's failed? Well, I was really trying to argue as with all of my first sentences, that it's a thesis of my book. So I always start out with this argument, and the argument that I was making is that history has failed us, and by us, I mean all of us in this room. I really believe that history has failed all of us because most of us don't know the history of regular people. Regular people don't leave primary documents or artifacts. They're not recorded in real time. That doesn't make us any less important than kings. And I wanted to argue that that's a huge mistake on the part of historians, not because historians are bad people. In fact, I really like historians. I trained in history in university. But historians who are very progressive must do the discipline based upon their training, which is that you have to have evidence. Mm. So what happens to all these people without evidence? Who are Who's telling their stories? So I wanted to argue that point. But the most important thing for me is that the subordinate clause is but no matter. 
So even though people in charge and people who keep records don't think that we're terribly important, I wanted to argue that, as a matter of fact, we keep persisting and we keep getting around things and we we actually are far more important than everybody else. So you've got a thesis, you've got a central mission statement, mm-hmm. and then what part of history did you want to look at with that mission statement and why? I wanted to talk about the people who are forgotten, the people who other people don't think are worth looking at. And also I want to talk about people who have to who have to choose to be invisible because they're persecuted so much. And I wanted to argue about passing. That was really important to me. And I think part of my personal connection is that when I was growing up, I had great difficulty with other people. So I feel like I'm a very good observer. And I'm also a social misfit. It's both. Yeah. And I think that being a social misfit makes you very qualified to be a writer. Mm. <laughs> and this... Uh, partic- except, I mean, except for these writers. They're... they're <laughs> oh, I think they're, after... They're just a, fine. <laughs> I think after a few drinks, you might discover a different side. But um, <laughs> So the chapter of history that you're looking at, your book um, is a saga in that it spans between, I think, 1910 to 1989. It includes the Japanese occupation of Korea, includes World War II. That's a huge span of history. And I'm curious to know how you arrive at the characters, at the family that you that you want to follow. How do you discover them and want to follow them? Oh, I had no intentions of ever writing a historical novel. So the, the first... Uh, manuscript that I wrote, which was called Motherland, not Pachinko, it actually focused on Solomon. So if anybody has read Pachinko, you know that Solomon today is a really minor character. There's a cameo appearance. Yeah, totally. He's a young person. He's he's Korean-Japanese, and he's basically third generation or almost fourth generation, depending on how you look at it. And what I did was I wrote an entire novel based on Solomon, and then I went to Japan in 2007, and I interviewed people who are kind of like Solomon, and I realized that they were so boring. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no wonder my book sucks. <laughs> back to the drawing board. Back to the drawing board. And then what I noticed in all of my field work and in all my interviews is that they talked about usually the first-generation person who was really interesting, who was often illiterate, often poor, often didn't have enough stakes back in the country of Korea in order to leave. Mm. And then I started to do more field work, and I was like, oh, she's actually far more interesting, this sort of progenitor, the first immigrant. And then I decided I would write about her. But she caused me lots of problems. So it took me a really long time to write this book. Mm. How long in total are you talking about? I think I got the idea when I was 19, I'm 51 almost. <laughs> so, um, yeah. <laughs> You're making Marcus feel a lot better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to be able to say that's nothing, but that beats me. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer, while we're talking about characters, I mean, you're looking at, um, you know, you're talking about a big issue um, uh, about firearms, but told through the lens of these really, um, of these characters who are very memorable and very mis- distinct. You've got Pearl, you've got Margot, um, you've got this um, Pastor Rex's Guns for God program, which brings someone called Eli Redmond to the town, um, which upends this world that we've set up um, at the start. How, how did you happen upon these characters, and how did you know that they were the ones to, to drive this story? Well, I very quickly knew that I wanted to write a ballad. So the whole book is really uh, a, a book where I think, I hope, you're constantly feeling music. 
And in fact, uh, so the characters are also characters that you might find in a ballad. And uh, at, well, at, the very, at, the very, at the beginning, on the opening page, uh, Pearl says about her mother, you know, she graduated from the University of Love. The University of Love being songs, mm -hmm. the blues, ballads. Um, and how could she get mixed up with this man if she knew all the songs? So uh, the whole book is all about how music affects uh, the movement of their lives and explains a lot of their lives. So uh, I don't know if that sort of answers it, but it. What was, what was easy and what was difficult about writing these characters? Well, they just come to me. I can't really say if it's easy or difficult. Uh, I hear them inside of me. It's, mm. a, it's a mysterious answer, but that's actually the way it is. And it's uh, part of that about that rhythm because there's such a distinct cadence in which this book is written. Is it about the, the voice of Pearl and capturing that in the very first it's place? It's the voice, and the voice came to me almost like a visitation. I heard her inside of me, and then she just sort of... It's, it's a great... The book is a monologue, mm. and so it's just her telling the story of everything that happened. Yeah. yeah. Marcus, um, we're focusing on Clay Dunbar. He's kind of, um, I mean, almost borderline orphan character. Um, his, his mother's died, his father's abandoned him and his brother, brothers, um, and then the father emerges and there's this project, there's this kind of quest to build, to build this bridge. Um, and Clay, at least, agrees to, to join him on this quest. And there's kind of almost this fable-like pre premise. It's almost biblical in some ways. And the idea comes to you at 20 years old. Can you, can you tell us about that moment and where, where that idea comes from and what it, what it meant to you? Yeah, I was walking around the suburb where I lived in, in Sydney and uh, I'm 20 and I, I was desperate. I'd go on these long walks trying to think of ideas. And, of course, now you realise, you, you grow up a little bit more and you realise you don't get your best ideas walk, taking long walks on the beach or anything. That's when you worry about your taxes and all your other problems and you, you, can't, you don't focus on it. So it's a bit like asking someone, you know, if you want to get better at running, you don't go for a long walk along the beach and think about running. You just have to run. And, uh, but I did. Now I can contradict that. I did get the idea going for this walk. I just saw this boy who wanted to build a bridge and his, and his name was Clayton and he wanted that bridge to be beautiful and perfect. He wanted it to be this one great thing. And, uh, and the luck, of course, was that I called him Clayton and it's always my belief that you need a bit of luck to get over the line to start writing a book or several pieces of luck. And it, was, it could have been any name, but I chose Clayton. And then that... And then... So I was going to call it Clayton's Bridge. And then... A couple of months later, I was walking around again and I thought, no, Bridge of Clay. And as soon as I thought of the title, I saw that he was actually moulding his whole life into that bridge. It was made of him. And I saw the ending there where the test was going to be, and this doesn't give the ending away, by the way, but that the river would flood and this would be the test of the bridge. Would he be able to walk along top of the water on top of the bridge if it survived the flood and the sun would be coming up in the water? because clay needs fire to set it. So I always had that idea in me. I didn't, and I wrote the book when I was about 23, and I at least had the editorial sense, 
at least I had something <laughs> back then to go, that's not it. You know, one of the many times where I just, that's not it. And, uh, and then all these years later, it was always the book that was going to be my hardest to write. I always thought it was my best idea. And so I would write all my other ideas first. And yeah. then finally, when I had nothing left, I went, now I've got to do it. Yeah. I mean, I want, to, I want to talk to all of you about um, the, the parallels and the resonances with the real world. And let's, let's start with you, Marcus. Um, you know, the, it might have a fable-like present, uh, a premise, uh, kind of like almost a biblical premise in a way. But what were the kind of like broader histories and timelines that informs this work and the family trajectory that you're studying here? I think... It's, I, often it's unrelated things. Uh, it's it's often things that don't make it into into the book, and it's even little things. It, for me, for example, it's the way my brother and I talk to each other. And my I've got two older sisters and an older brother, and I still remember the day that I found, or the night. It was two twenty in the morning. I'd never been overseas before, and I was in Austria, where my dad's from. I was staying with his old best friend in Vienna. And I found, and my dad, the phone rang at 2.20 in the morning and I'd sent my first, well, not my first manuscript, I'd had other failed ones. Uh, I sent this manuscript away and when the phone rang at 2.20 in the morning, I thought, I think that's someone's, that's going to be my dad and he's going to say that they're publishing your book. It was my first book, The Underdog, and that's what it was. Mm. And it was so exciting and I remember calling my sister's and my oldest sister, she said, oh, it's so great. I hit the ceiling when I heard. And then my other sister just broke down and cried. And then I called my brother. <laughs> and, uh, and after about 10 minutes, I said to him, uh, so did you, did you hear about my book? And he went, yeah. <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that is how my brother tells me that he loves me yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so and so it's that like so for, I mean in so many ways yeah, you think of all of the sweeping histories and the structure of a book where it's going from past to present and it's like the tide coming in and the tide going out you do all of these things but I think it starts in a foreign kitchen uh, with a moment like that and you go yeah. that's how these brothers talk to each other in this yeah. book that chemistry between siblings. That's great. Jennifer, you, you said recently um, that you think of some of your books as an iceberg and what the reader reads is the surface of something much deeper. Um, and it reminds me that for, for this book, Gun Love, you actually did a lot of research that might not explicitly be on the page but informed the writing of, of this world that, that you've created. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you did about firearms and how that bled into this work of fiction? Yeah. So uh, I did a lot of research. I've been to the NRA twice and, and to their museum. I've interviewed um, survivors of massacres, especially from the famous uh, Batman premiere massacre in uh, Colorado. And then also been on the border a lot, gone to a lot of the gun shows, talked to guards on both sides of the borders, the guards on, on the US side of the border where there are over 9,000 gun shops all along the border. You know, say, do you ever look to what's crossing into Mexico, you know? And uh, of course they don't, that's not important. 
what goes to Mexico doesn't matter. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of research that's not in the book at all. Mm. Yeah. But at one point, it does remind me, I think one of the characters brings up that quote that for every person on the planet, there's there's two bullets. That's real, isn't that's it? That's real, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's completely real. And this isn't the first time you've written within this realm or about it. Um, a previous work's kind of almost looked at the opposite dynamic between America and Mexico. Can you tell us about the relationship between that book and, and Gun Love? They, they can be read separately, but they're also a diptych. So Prayers for the Stolen is very much about how a Mexican girl might get to the United States, and Gun Love is about how a Me an American girl might get to Mexico. Uh, there's a line in Gun Love that I wrote before all of this, uh, problems with um, the treatment of immigrants in the United States, which was, this Mexican woman takes Pearl to Mexico and, she, and Pearl says, Corazon, that's the name of the Mexican woman, Corazon was not going to give me over to the United States of America fate. She was betting on Mexican love. Mm. And I can't believe I wrote that before mm. all this happened, but uh, <coughs> there's a lot of truth in, in that line of pearls. Yeah. <laughs> it strikes me that all three of you um, touch on themes of immigration uh, to some extent in your work. Uh, with, you, with you, Jennifer, now that gun love has come out and now that there is a climate in America, especially where um, the conversation is very, very pointedly anti-migrant, at least from the President of the United States. Where, where does this book fit in or respond to that conversation and anxieties about, about immigration between these two countries as well, specifically? I'm not sure that the book really talks about that. I mean, the, the book is really about the problem of the guns. So what it does address is that so many of these immigrants are leaving to places of terrible violence in Central America, especially, and the violence in those countries is fueled by the U.S. guns. So, so that would be the connection, mm. more uh, helping to create the situations that these people are desperately trying to flee from. Mm. Um, Min Jin, uh, your book is definitely a story of, of human movement. Um, and it makes me think that it, it presents a history that I imagine a few people outside of Korea and Japan really knew about, the history of um, Koreans in Japan and the double-edged forms of discrimination that they encounter. So um, it also makes me think about the current conversations about immigration in the United States as well. What, what did your book want to contribute to that broader conversation about, about global human movement? I think I wanted to express my indignation because that wasn't my experience as a Korean-American person. So I grew up in Queens, New York, which has the highest number of immigrants around the world. Mm. It's kind of like the front door, basically, of the Northeast for immigrants. And they have all different kinds of immigrants. And when I came to the United States in 1976, I was seven years old. I didn't speak a word of English. And in many ways, and I had all these kind of educational problems. I had learning issues. But I had such kindness given to me in terms of public school teachers and librarians and even our neighbors who are basically blue collar people. So it was really so stunning to me is to learn about the history of the Koreans in Japan. And after three, four, five generations to be treated with this kind of hostility that even today in 2019, to be a Korean person in Japan ethnically, it's in some ways a very dangerous thing. Like you can't, for example, if you don't have the right legal status, you can't rent an apartment today. You can't become a postal worker today even though you're in Japan for four or five generations. And that was so stunning to me. And I thought, 
well, I'm really pissed. So I wrote a novel, and mm. that novel was really bad. <laughs> because if you're really angry, it doesn't make a very interesting book. Mm. So I wrote it again, and that book was really about people. So then when I put the issues in the background and put the people front, then all of a sudden the book became so much more interesting. And then I realized, oh, I really um, want to write about love, not about my anger. Mm. And that really affected the book. Yeah. Um, you've written this saga that feels both panoramic and quite intimate simultaneously. Oh, um, and I'm also wondering on a really practical level how you kept track of the book itself. Like to, to write something like Pachinko, which spans countries, generations, languages, characters, do you need like spreadsheets or <laughs> post-it notes? Like what are, what are the actual tools? I know this is a slightly nerdy craft question, but how are you keeping track of all of these different threads? Well, it was so difficult, I'll never do it again. <laughs> Like, it was so, so difficult. I mean, if you go to my house, I have boxes and boxes of research, as well as spreadsheets and index cards. And at one point, I just was going to give up mm. because I really couldn't keep it all in my head. And then a friend of mine introduced me to something called Scrivener, which is a software that a lot of academics use, because then you can actually list a lot of your research as well as what you're drafting. And I think it's used by a lot of journalists and academics to write PhD dissertations. Yeah. And that's what I use to write Pachinko. I really love Scrivener. We're not paid by Scrivener, by the way, but... Um... <laughs> we pay them. It was like $50 or $100. That's I can't right. remember how much it was. It's pretty much worth it. Uh, Jennifer, what about you? What's your process? I mean, you, you, you start with this huge kind of body of research when you talk about um, your conversations with NRA, people who've survived these kinds of things. Where do you place that? Like, give us an idea of, like, on a practical level what you're doing with that research, how you're keeping track of your characters and all of that stuff. Well, certainly, I mean, the best answer would be prayers for the stolen. So the story about violence in Mexico was very male-driven. Even the literature, we now have a genre that's narco literatura, the literature of narcos, very all written pretty much by men and about men. And women are just sort of cliched characters. They're the prostitute, the mother, the girlfriend. And so I really wanted to understand uh, what was happening with women in Mexico. So I actually began by interviewing women of drug traffickers. And so that was, I did that for about two years, which ended up being very important for that book because then I knew actually the ranches in the north of Mexico where these girls were taken. But I couldn't find the book until I heard about these girls that were being stolen in the state of Guerrero. Uh, and what would they would do is these SUVs would be coming full of men looking for little girls to steal. And the, the, the mothers would dig holes in the ground and hide their daughters in these holes. And that's when I knew that's the book because I couldn't stop thinking because on one hand it was like being buried alive. And, but it was also like all these little girls in a rabbit warren with their little hearts beating, you know. So... But then, of course, all that research, which was actually more than two years, uh, was so important for understanding the culture of what was happening and where these girls were being taken. So, I mean, you don't, you sometimes are going down one road mm. uh, and then it takes you somewhere else. And then the research, for example, research, I'm sure that all of us up here and writers in the audience will agree, it, it, the gift that research gives you, the unexpected surprise, Mm. So I knew I wanted that the, um, uh, Selena Quintanilla to be in the book. She's the Texan singer who was shot dead 
when she was 22 years old. And that's also one of the reasons the book's in Florida, because I wanted to end up in Corpus Christi, where she was killed. Mm. So uh, I was doing research, and I was they've made a museum for her and a statue. And I was thinking, well, what happened to the gun? Where's the gun? So they obviously had the same question, like, do we put the gun in the museum? What do we do with this gun? And so uh, what they did is they found the gun finally in some old cupboard in a brown paper bag. You cannot invent this stuff. And the judge ordered the gun to be broken into 40 pieces. I mean, it's so biblical. And that he would lend his boat and that they would throw the pieces of the gun into the Corpus Christi Bay. So you can imagine that, of course, that is in my novel. (laughs) But but this is what research does. It gives you these extraordinary stories that you can't even believe. Yeah, Yeah. that um, defies belief. Um, It does, it does, but it's uh, true. Marcus, what about you? Um, A similar question. You've got got a real saga that you've produced in... um, Bridge of Clay, and how are you keeping track of all these threads? Because as you were saying, it's a very long process, and, and I know that it was at some times a deeply frustrating process to capture what you really wanted to put on the page. So what does, what does that process look like? How are you organising the chaos? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't even know how to say is it a Scribner or a Scribner. This proves that it's not right. This is not sponsored by them <laughs> because I, I basically, I'm so old-fashioned in a lot of ways I just, I love notebooks. It's a, it's my, I'm not going to say it's my reason for living. I mean, that's too sad. But I just love, I love sitting down at the kitchen table or just in a shack somewhere and just planning, like writing out. And the way I plan a book is some, and sometimes I just put favourite movies on. Yeah, so I'll go through a month of The Club or a month of Chariots of Fire or a month of Amelie or a month of City of God and I sit and I make my notes. And because I watch, I half watch I, and then part of me dreams and part of me works hard. So, so wait a minute. You're, uh, so it's not like you're harvesting ideas or tone from the stuff. You're basically getting yourself into a trance slash fugue state. <laughs> uh, well, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't go that far. I think what I'm looking for, it's a bit, I'm just looking for comfort. Yeah. I'm looking for, I, I think what I'm always, what I want when I'm writing a book is, and so it's the way I describe it is I just always want to feel close to the book. I want to feel close to it. I want to, and I want to be able to roll out of bed. I want to feel like I can open my eyes in the morning and roll out of bed and land in the world of the book. Okay. And that's how I get close to the book. I sit down and so if I haven't been able to work for a week due to all sorts of things, I'll sit down. So, And if you look through my notebooks and there were 14 notebooks for Bridge of Clay, I've figured out, I finally counted them up uh, because I said 11 the other day but it was 14 uh, (laughs) notebooks. And and if you look through them, most of the pages are the eight parts and all the chapters within the parts. And I would be able to, and there are 100 chapters, which is not because I like... The, you know, the significance of 100, it was because I wanted the, 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 amount of, the amount of chapters in each part to add up in a way so that there were, four, there were um, 12 in all of the chapters, in all of the parts except two, which have 14 chapters, and that gives you two arches mm. if you actually draw that on the page. Wow. And uh, so... 
That, and I was just, so, and I'll get really bogged down in doing that as well, but writing out the chapter headings and so I could recite them. Portrait of a Killer as a Middle-Aged Man, Warming Up the Clayway, mm. Barbarians, Theatre in the Grass. Theatre in the Grass didn't actually make it into the book, but I just had these titles and that's my map of where I'm going. Wow, that process is so interesting and I could just hear half of the audience responding with a sigh of wonder and the other half with a sigh of an anxiety attack, <laughs> just just listening to how that plays out. Look, we're going to throw it open to the audience very soon, but um, before we do, um, all of this conversation is making uh, me think of uh, something you said recently, Jennifer, where you, where you said you'd never want to write a didactic novel but a philosophical one, yes. So um, let's start with you, Marcus. When, when it comes to looking at, at family, um, what is the philosophy that you think is underpinning what you've written and what you wanted to say about family? I actually don't. I always think it's best sometimes to just say, I don't know. <laughs> uh, because I actually I don't. Mm. Uh, I'm I'm at a point now where I think I mind so much of my childhood writing my first books and and now I'm, uh, what I've realised is that's tipping over and that I'm starting to get really good stories from my kids and there are little moments like the one I, I mentioned the other day about how. My, I very rarely outside of the house, or, well, not in the house either, to tell you the truth, very rarely don't have a T-shirt on or something. But when my son saw me without my T-shirt brushing sand out of my car with it, he saw me and he stopped dead in his tracks. He's four years old and he just said, hey, Pop, my kids call me Pop. That's a long story. He said, hey, Pop, what are you doing here in just your nipples? <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, and of course, I stopped dead in my tracks and I just went, that's genius. And uh, <laughs> not in a way, and we're, we're the sort of parents, when our ch my children are not gifted, all right? They're, they're not, you know, they're not, you know, they're going to be geniuses in the world or, and neither are their parents and uh, especially not me. And, but at that, every four-year-old child is a genius when they say something like yeah. that. And, of course, I also thought I might be able to use that. And so <laughs> that may be as far as my philosophy uh, extends. But, um, and, but I know that I'm going to walk away from here and I'm going to have the perfect answer by around four o'clock. Oh, I think, I think nipples is the perfect answer <laughs> and a beautifully self-contained one. Uh, Jennifer, what about you? Um, the philosophy of family and how did you... What did, what did you want to say? I mean, there's a lot to say about... Um, about firearms and that broader conversation in the novel, but but family in and of itself, what what's the philosophy driving driving? Well, the I work? think I, I wanted yeah. to to I I am a single mother, and I wanted to portray the relationship that can occur between a mother and a daughter when they're they just have each other and this kind of intense vulnerability, and because I live in Mexico City and I raised my children in Mexico City. We actually did live in the car because it's the biggest city in the world. And so when people say, but how can you know about living in a car? My children are like, of <laughs> course we know exactly what it is to live in a car. So yeah, when you live in a city like Mexico City and you get in the car, you do have to think about, are you going to be hungry? Are you going to have to go to the bathroom? Um, there are many sort of things you have to think about because it can take two hours to get someplace and two hours to get home. So we did have a very intense life in the car. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to sort of show 
that. Yeah. Even though it's very removed in a way, it's very close at the same time. Mm, Thank you. Um, Finally, with you, Minjin, same kind of question. Um, What's the philosophical drive? What did you want to say about family through Pachinko especially? Well, if you ever um, have a book signed by me, which is kind of a weird way to put it, I usually write the words, we are family. And I write it because I guess for me, it's a very political act. I believe that if I study the diaspora, I'm studying how people are ejected and scattered and rejected and have to leave a place, which means that the whole world is connected by people who have to leave and because our borders keep changing. And I keep thinking, what would it happen if we really believed that we are family? Then all of a sudden, the way we think about people who are outside would actually be people who are your brothers and sisters. So that's what I mean when I write We Are Family. And that's what I believe. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.